on October 1st, 2017, a man named Stephen Paddock began to open fire on a crowd of people attending the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival in Las Vegas. He fired over 1,100 rounds from his Mandalay Bay hotel room, killing 58 people and injuring another 546. It was a night that not only devastated the city of Las Vegas, it was a horrific act of violence that made headlines around the world. We've been working on this case for several months, and we were hesitant to release in light of the most recent act of senseless mass murder that rained down upon a local high school in Parkland, Florida on February 14, 2018, killing 17 people. But the heartbreaking and bitter reality is that these abrupt assaults on large numbers of people have become all too familiar. In fact, as we released our episode about Derek Bird's murderous rampage, the Las Vegas shooting had just occurred. Derek Bird was a taxi driver who appeared to have suddenly snapped in Cumbria, England, deciding to randomly shoot and kill 12 people, injuring 11 others. Sadly, as one of these tragedies began to slowly fade from the headlines, there was usually another one close on its heels. Following each mass shooting, it is common to see a tremendous amount of debate regarding stricter gun regulations, or how people had failed to notice that the killer had begun to unravel. While telling these stories of tragedy, we attempt to peer behind the curtain, outlining the series of events, circumstances, and state of mind of the people who have chosen to senselessly kill another human being. We also try to focus on the victims and the people who have been left behind to pick up the pieces forever changed. Join me now as we look back into the life of Stephen Paddock and try to find clues as to what led a 64-year-old man from Mesquite, Nevada down a dark path. To destruction. Stephen Craig Paddock was born on April 9, 1953, to Patrick Benjamin Paddock and Dolores Paddock in Clinton, Ohio. Stephen's father, Benjamin, had already had an extensive record by the time Stephen was born. Benjamin Paddock spent five years in the Illinois State Penitentiary from 1946 to 1951 for ten counts of auto larceny and five counts of confidence game. That marked the beginning of Benjamin's long career as a con man. In 1953, Benjamin was convicted again for passing bad checks, but was released after three years for good behavior. 
Three years later, Benjamin Paddock began a string of bank robberies in Arizona. By 1960, he was accused of robbing three banks and taking more than $20,000, which would be worth over $164,000 today. While the FBI was taking him into custody, Benjamin managed to get into a car and attempt to run over one of the agents. Benjamin was finally convicted and sentenced to 20 years for the bank robberies. However, he escaped federal prison in 1968. He spent eight years on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives list. Just to give you an idea of what this meant at that time, most fugitives were only on that list for an average of six months before they were caught. The FBI described Benjamin as a diagnosed psychopath, possibly suicidal, and very dangerous. Stephen Paddock was seven years old when his father was arrested by the FBI. The oldest of four boys, he was very likely the only child old enough to remember what was happening with his father at that time. According to Stephen's brother, Eric, the boys had no contact with their father at all, and Stephen became the main father figure in the younger boys' lives. The younger brothers were told that their father had died and their mother had moved on as best as she could with her sons. Stephen graduated from the Richard E. Byrd Middle School and then the John H. Francis Polytechnic High School in Sun Valley, California. He was described by schoolmates and neighbors as average and overall pleasant. He didn't seem to stand out in any way. After high school, Stephen went to the California State University in Northbridge, where he again just blended in. His performance in school was mostly just average. He took a leave of absence from the university during the fall semester of 1971. According to his brother Eric, Stephen was suffering from allergies and stomach problems. He graduated in 1977 with a degree in business administration. After earning his degree, Stephen held a variety of jobs. His brother said, Stephen was always looking for where the money was. He worked for the United States Postal Service. He then worked for the Internal Revenue Service for several years. He also spent a year as an auditor for federal defense contracts. Following that, for three years, he worked as an internal auditor for a company that would later become Lockheed Martin. Finally, he managed to achieve some success in real estate after going into business with his brother, Eric. Stephen appeared to have some difficulty maintaining intimate relationships. But although being married and divorced twice, he still seemed amicable and in good terms with both ex-wives. Eventually, Stephen met a woman by the name of Mary Lou Danley, a hostess working at the Atlantis Casino Resort and Spa in Reno, Nevada. 
a casino where Stephen had been known to frequent. Despite being married, Mary Lou and Stephen began a relationship. In 2013, the two moved in together, and Mary Lou filed for divorce in 2015, and it was finalized the very next day. Throughout their relationship, Paddock maintained multiple homes with Mary Lou, buying and selling them as a way to make money and move money to the low tax havens of Texas and Nevada. In 2014, while filling out an application at a sales office for a home being built in a housing development, Stephen indicated his income came from gambling and that he gambled approximately a million dollars a year. The sales agent said he paid cash for the house. Neighbors in Florida described the couple as not unfriendly, however, they were very quiet. They kept to themselves and didn't socialize much with the rest of the neighborhood. According to Eric, Stephen's brother, Mary Lou would go without makeup or perfume in deference to Stephen's allergies. According to a recent interview with investigators, the couple's relationship had been strained in the year before the shooting and were no longer intimate. The man who had once been described not as a whale, that's a high roller in the world of Vegas casinos, but as a small end of a big fish, had been on a losing streak. He was showing signs of paranoia, according to the only person he really allowed to get close to him. Mary Lou told investigators that Stephen had become obsessed with cleanliness and privacy. He had become a germaphobe and displayed a strong sensitivity to a multitude of scents. Stephen told his friends and family that he felt ill all the time and always seemed to be tired. According to reports filed with the Clark County investigators, Stephen's doctor was concerned that Stephen was showing signs of bipolar disorder. Bipolar disorder is described as a mental disorder marked by alternating periods of elation and depression. However, when those concerns were brought up to Stephen, he refused to talk about the possibility. He also seemed to distrust most medications displayed by either not accepting prescriptions or simply not taking the pills once they were prescribed. He did at one point agree to be prescribed diazepam for anxiety. The National Center of Biotechnology Information says that diazepam, also known as Valium, is an anti-anxiety drug. Some of the possible side effects include changes in patterns or rhythms of speech, discouragement, confusion, false beliefs that cannot be changed by facts, feeling sad or empty, feeling that others are watching you or controlling your behavior, feeling that others can hear your thoughts, feeling, seeing, or hearing things that are not there, and many, many more. Mary Lou recalled to investigators that while staying in the room with Paddock in the same hotel room he would later use for the mass shooting, 
that she witnessed him going back and forth from window to window for hours. A little more than two weeks before the shooting, Stephen told Mary Lou that he'd found a cheap ticket for her to fly back to the Philippines to visit her family. Not for a moment, thinking that the man she had spent the past few years with was capable of planning something so sinister, she accepted his offer. In a statement later read by criminal defense attorney Matthew Lombard, Mary Lou stated, I knew Stephen Paddock as a kind, caring, quiet man. He never said anything to me or took any action that I was aware of that I understood in any way to be a warning that something horrible like this was going to happen. Although being excited to see her family, she admitted feeling a bit concerned after Stephen wired her money and told her she should buy a house for herself and her family. She thought perhaps it was Stephen's way of ending their relationship. Mary Lou stated, I was grateful, but honestly, I was worried. The unexpected trip home and then the money was a way of breaking up with me, she said. It never occurred to me in any way whatsoever that he was planning violence against everyone. We spoke to Douglas McGregor, a specialist in behavioral forensics and geographic profiling. We asked if there was any information that has come to light after the shooting that may have indicated that Stephen was about to snap. You know, a lot of times when you hear people say, I didn't think this would be this kind of person. You know, they seem normal. There was nothing suspicious about them. Uh, a lot of times that tends to be, in my experience, the the serial murderer type, similar to the Bruce MacArthur that's going on in Toronto right now. When it comes to the mass murders, there are usually a lot of indicators. If you look at some of the cases that have gone on, they either have a large online presence or they have religious or political views. They could be right-wing, fanatical, whatever it may be, or they could be Islamist, extremist. They usually have these kind of indicators that show, some, show what their motive might be and show what kind of person they might be. Obviously, none of this means they're going to be a mass murderer, but these, the, the individuals that do turn out to be mass murderers, they have these things in their background. This case with Stephen Paddock is, I find, very intriguing because he doesn't have this in his background. He, again, he seems to be a normal individual. He did have those indicators that a lot of mass murderers do end up either taking their own life or death by law enforcement. And those individuals, if you look in their background, a lot of them will have the same indicators that somebody who just takes their own life, commits suicide, has before they do that action. So Stephen Paddock had some of these. He paid off his debts, which is a very common one for individuals who take their own life, took care of his family, sent his wife to the Philippines, sent her money, $100,000 plus to buy a house over there. So he did tie up those loose ends before committing this act of violence. The deadliest mass shooting in modern American history happened on October 1st, 2017. But the planning started quite some time before. Months leading up to that horrific night, Paddock was stockpiling rifles, as well as accessories and ammunition. Unbeknownst to his longtime girlfriend, family, and neighbors, 
Douglas McGregor goes over the various phases Stephen would have methodically gone through before reaching the last phase when he executed his plan. Right now, everything I've seen in the media and the police preliminary report that came out, I've read through as much as I possibly can. There's quite a bit. They all seem to be focusing on October 2016 on, and that's when Paddock started to stockpile uh, the firearms that he used in this attack. I guess from t- October 2016 to September 2017, he purchased more than 55 firearms, which a lot of them were used in this attack. But that October 2016 is a key date because it's what led up to that October 2016 is, is critical here because there was a catalyst or a stressor that made him decide, you know, I'm going to start thinking about and this process of planning an attack. And that's what I call the reaction phase. And it's triggered by emotion, which is caused by a stressor. So something in his life, and it could either be sudden or it could be gradual. something built up to that point where on October 2016, he decided to start gathering these weapons um, with a thought of using them for something violent. From there, we move into the planning stage and the planning stage or the planning phase, from what I have read in the media and the police reports, would have started in May 2017. In May 2017, he started to look into different popular beaches, La Jolla Beach in San Diego, Santa Monica Beach in California, as well as open-air concert venues in Las Vegas and in Chicago. He started researching where was a, a target mass located and where would an easy target be, how would he gain accessibility to these places, what area would result in the most victims. From this planning, he moved into a resolve phase where he started to get resolve. He started to, he booked a hotel room overlooking Lollapalooza, which is in Grant Park, Chicago, Illinois. And he booked this hotel room. And that would have been probably the most ideal target if he was just looking at number of victims, because I think Lollapalooza, I looked into it, and they had 400,000 people over the course of the weekend, so basically 100,000 people a day at Lollapalooza. But for whatever reason, he never checked into that hotel and never followed through with that. My belief is that it was one of two reasons. He just wasn't ready to commit to his end goal. He wasn't ready to give his life to his cause or his grievance, whatever it may be. So I think that that played a big part. And I also think that uh, it was also an environment, environmental factor is that, you know, we, we, we know where we go and we go where we know. And I think that he was familiar, familiar with Las Vegas, but not so much with, with Chicago. The final phase is the action phase. And he finally, after booking into the Ogden and overlooking the Life is Beautiful Music Festival, he held out and he booked at the Mandalay Bay, which overlooked the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival. And he finally carried out his action there on the final night on October 1st. 
Stephen Paddock arrived at the Mandalay Bay on September 25th and checked into a complimentary room because he frequently gambled at the casino. Four days later, he checked into another suite beside it. Accompanying him were ten suitcases, containing more than 23 rifles and a large supply of ammunition. It was discovered later that he also had more ammunition and explosives that he had left behind in his vehicle, but none of the hotel staff seemed to be aware. It was reported that Paddock had up to 10 separate interactions with various hotel staff between September 25th and October 1st, including with room service staff. AMGM Resorts International spokesperson said that all those interactions were normal in nature. At some point, Stephen also managed to rig his own surveillance cameras on the premises, one inside his room and another one outside. Just before 10 p.m. on October 1st, 2017, a hotel security guard by the name of Jesus Campos was sent to the 32nd floor of the hotel to check on a door being left open. Currently on the 31st floor, Jesus attempted to reach the 32nd floor by stairwell, but discovered the door had been blocked. Campos made the assumption that there must have been workers in the corridor and proceeded to an elevator so that he could gain access to the floor. At 9.59 p.m., Campos finally arrived to the 32nd floor, and as he approached the stairwell door that he had been unable to open on the other side, he discovered that it had been locked using some metal brackets. After contacting engineering, he began to hear what sounded like drilling noises. As he started walking away from the door, he heard the drilling sounds again, and he was suddenly struck. The drilling sounds had actually been the sound of rapid gunfire. Paddock had shot at Campos through his hotel room door, In an interview on The Ellen Show, Campos recalled what happened next. He stated, I took cover. I felt a burning sensation. I went to go lift my pant leg and I saw the blood. That's when I called it in on my radio. And at 10.08 p.m., Stephen Paddock began firing on the concert goers gathered below his hotel room window. Men and women from all over had gathered outside the hotel attending the Route 91 Harvest Festival, a country music festival held annually since 2014 in the Las Vegas Village. A 15-acre lot located on the Las Vegas Boulevard, formerly called U.S. Route 91, directly across from the Luxor Las Vegas Hotel and Casino, and diagonally across from the Mandalay Bay Resort and Casino. It was a beautiful night, and attendees Jack Beaton and his wife Lori had made the trip from Bakersfield, California in order to celebrate their 23rd wedding anniversary. Tara Rowe had come all the way from Alberta, Canada to listen to some of her favorite country music artists. 
Andrea Castella was also there from Huntington Beach, California, having fun and dancing with her sister in the crowd. We'd like you to hear next from someone who was born and raised in Las Vegas, a person who also happened to be attending the festival that night. For personal reasons, she asked that her identity not be shared. I was born and raised in Las Vegas. You know, everybody has the perception of it, the lights and the casinos and everything, but there's all kinds of communities all around the Strip where things are family-oriented. There's parks, you know, there's activities. We have the mountains we can go to. We have the lake that we can go to, to where, you know, it's also a recreational destination. It's just not all the glitz. I still have the same sense that I did like as a kid, you know, the community, you just kind of get to learn what other people's perspectives are on what this town is about. And you start realizing that, you know, wow, people really think that about Las Vegas. I was just taking one of the shots in the dark, you know, a radio station was giving away tickets and I'd been trying to win. And next thing I know, I was caller seven and I was able to win the tickets for that whole weekend. And I was so excited to go because I've never been able to go. And, you know, I just started out the weekend so excited, enjoying Friday night and Saturday and Sunday was great, too. We were having a great time. We were excited. We were working our way through the crowd, and we were up close to the stage, just having a good time singing along, dancing around, you know, talking to people. I think because we were so close to the stage, we couldn't, with the music, figure out what it was. We thought, who is setting off fireworks? Like, we're looking around going, who's the jerk who is doing this? And so we're kind of going along with the music again. And then that's when we realized something wasn't right when they went off again. And it turns out the person right in front of me was struck. The reason why we realized he was hit was when... He turned around and told his buddy, I've been hit, and he kind of fell and parted the, the crowd. We could see that he was hit in, in the chest. This is the point in time where I went blank. I have no clue how I got back around to my friend. There was lots of crying, yelling. I kept bracing myself with every burst. You know, they say when you're you're struck with a bullet, it's like a burning sensation. With every burst, I kept waiting to have that sensation. When you're laying on the ground, you're looking for 
where can I get out? Where, where can I get away from this? Especially when you're so deep into the crowd, you have nowhere to go. By the time police were able to reach the 32nd floor of the hotel, the shooting had abruptly stopped. In under 10 minutes, Paddock had managed to expend over a thousand rounds of bullets into a sea of innocent and bewildered bystanders. Gunshots had reached as far as the nearby McCarran International Airport, where a 43,000-gallon fuel truck was struck. Paddock had fired at police as they arrived on the scene. Here's an audio recording of police officers communicating to one another. 169 Sam we got shots fired at 4.15 a.m. at the Route 91. Sounded like an automatic firearm. Copy, code red at 169 Sam Easy have shots fired. 169 Sam Easy is coming from upstairs in Mandalay Bay. Upstairs in Mandalay Bay, halfway up. I see the shots coming from Mandalay Bay, halfway up. Patrol 361 IC, we have uh, multiple 458 breaks. Give me a surge. We have an active shooter. We have an active shooter inside the fairgrounds. Shots fired from Mandalay Bay. There's many people down. Stage left. Just be advised. 790 arrived. I'm going to form a strike team. Mandalay Bay and the Boulevard. I need five officers on me. Control Z 20. Z 20, go ahead. Get a set on the suspect's door. I need everybody in that hallway to be aware of it and get back. We need to pop this and see if we get any type of response from this guy to see if he's in here or if he's actually moved out somewhere else. Got the audience on the 32nd floor. SWAT has explosive breach. Everyone in the hallway needs to move back. All units move back. Breach, breach, breach. Once authorities were able to gain access into Paddock's hotel room, they discovered why the shooting had stopped. Stephen was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound through his mouth. As the Las Vegas Police Department, the Clark County Sheriff's Department, and the FBI frantically worked to find answers to the questions surrounding this terrible atrocity. There was a push from the media and public to release what information they had uncovered. Unfortunately, to date there has been no real explanation as to why this 64-year-old man had become unraveled and inflicted such a gruesome and random attack of violence on an unknowing crowd of people. Here's Eric Paddock speaking about his brother to the media shortly after the shooting. Our condolences to everyone. Uh, oh, oh, we just don't understand. Uh, it's like I said, an asteroid just fell out of the sky. And we have no reason, rhyme, rationale, excuse, there's just nothing. 
When was the last There's time nothing. You had talked to your brother. <laughs> he texted me to make sure my mom was okay after the hurricane. We had, didn't have power for five days. I mean, we're, we're there's nothing. I mean, the last time she talked to him, no indication of anything. I mean, nothing. He was in Vegas and gone on a cruise or something, or da, 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 blah, 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 blah. And see, I mean, he sent her a walker because she's having trouble walking. I mean, <laughs> it's like I said, find out who sold him the machine gun. There's no, uh, I'm, I don't know what else to say. I just, Have you had I mean, it's his fault that he did this. I mean, but I'd like to know where he found the machine gun because that's not something that's that easy to come by, I assume. Uh, and he's not, I mean, he has no criminal record. Uh, there's no, there's just, I mean, we were working with the cops since the first thing, trying to, you know, well, <laughs> trying to understand or you know trying to make it do what we could like, there's just nothing we got nothing to give you there's there's just nothing he was just a guy uh, you know could have been my kids at that show I mean you know et cetera, et cetera. I don't know what else to say we're have you seen any of the, the videos have you I've been watching this stuff all morning I mean and I mean how holy... does that affect you to my brother just killed 50-plus people. How does that affect me? And here's one of Mary Lou's sisters speaking out about Stephen. He sent her away so that he can plan what He's planning without interruptions. In that sense, I thank him for sparing my sister's life. But that won't be to compensate our 59 people's life. But Mary Lou Dunley is my sister. She's a good person and gentle soul. A mother, a grandmother, a sister, a friend I know that she don't know anything as well like us. She was sent away. She was sent away so that she will be not there to interfere or put this planning. As we mentioned earlier, these spontaneous and unprovoked acts of terror on innocent people have sadly become all too familiar in the news. Mass shootings have become so common that our school teachers are now educating our children about what to do if someone enters school grounds armed with a gun. It's become a terrifying possibility that we've all been forced to face. But despite the horror, fear, and hatred these single acts of violence exhibit, it is the strength and love expressed by perfect strangers that speaks louder about our abilities as human beings. Strangers, acting as human shields, trying to protect and help one another in a moment of absolute chaos. Individuals from all walks of life coming together in the aftermath. Victims advocates have volunteered their time 
and are to this day working to help heal the physical, mental, and emotional wounds of those left injured. The Las Vegas Victims Fund was specifically created to help all those impacted by the shooting. Volunteers have traveled near and far to Las Vegas to help as counselors and to aid the law enforcement community and to help the first responders. The entire world learned what it truly meant to be Vegas strong. We wanted to do something special to commemorate the victims who died on October 1st, 2017. Not only those who lost their lives, but those who survived and were also affected. Long after the media headlines have faded away from this horrific event, there will still remain countless people whose lives have been touched and continue to search for answers. 10 minutes of havoc will take for some a lifetime of healing to overcome. We felt so strongly that it was important for us to tell you about the people whose lives were senselessly taken, and we hope that their names will forever be remembered. In doing so, we decided to reach out to our online community and ask for help. Here are the names of all 58 victims that lost their lives in this tragedy. While listening to their names, we encourage you to remember that these people were sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, friends and loved ones. Brian Fraser Teresa Nicole Kimura Quentin Robbins Kurt Von Tillo Carrie Galvin Lisa Pettison Laura Ship, Rhonda LaRock Bill Wolf Jenny Parks Brennan Stewart Steve Berger Victor Link Melissa Ramirez John Fippen Jordan McIldoon Andrea Castilla James Sonny Melton Rachel Parker Adrian Murphy Thomas Day Jr. Candace Bowers Charleston Hartfield Jack Beaton Carrie Barnett Heather Alvarado Denise Cohen Denise Bertadas Jessica Klumchuk Kelsey Meadows Christiana Duarte Angela Gomez Austin Davis Sandy Casey Rocio Gilin Roca Hannah Ehlers Stacy Etchaba Kala Marie Medic Nessa Tonks Susan Smith Eric Silva I try to find Like you do, it would be a lie to run. 
Derek Bo Taylor. Tara Rowe. Doreen Anderson. Chris Roybal. Carrie Parsons. Cameron Robinson. Dana Gardner. Lisa Romero Muniz. Michelle Bo. Carly Creebaum. Jordan Rivera. Brett Schwanbeck. Bailey Schweitzer. Austin Meyer. Patricia Mestez. Jennifer Topaz Irvine. Chris was a six foot five inch gentle giant who used his body to protect his best friend's wife and later died in the hospital, making him the last of the 58 victims. It keeps on falling, it keeps on falling, it keeps on falling, water keeps on falling from my eyes. like to thank the following Patreons for their support. Paula K. Jennifer G. Melinda R. Red P. Adam P. Vanessa W. Tiffany R. Mary C. Cassie. Carol C. Evan W. Tiffany R. Ashley B. Emma B. Quinn Marie S. And Stephanie C. From Beck and I. We thank you so much for your financial support of the show. And now I'd like to introduce two podcasts. We're all just pretending. Hi, I'm Lainey, host of the new podcast, We're All Just Pretending. It's a podcast that has elements of Dear Abby with a twist of post-secret. Every episode, I'll read listener questions and provide advice and insight as a friend. My own pod friends will even join in and offer their advice on parenting, relationships, and even give you really bad advice on purpose. Since we all have secrets to share, there'll also be a segment focusing on letting the skeletons out of your closet. If you're looking for advice or want to share a secret, 
head to allpretendingpod.com. And remember, we're all just pretending here. And Insight. Insight is a podcast that explores true crime and mysteries. We've two hosts from two continents. We recommend trying some of our recent episodes like Marcia, Sylvia, and Stonewall that explores gay rights movement in the U.S. and the unsolved death of activist Marcia P. Johnson. Or our episode on Jaden Lesky, an Australian child whose murder seemed to have been solved. Or perhaps the Lion Sisters, two missing American children who have seen justice. But was it complete justice? We also covered the Parker Hume case out of New Zealand, a story of teen girls who did the unimaginable, yet went on to live their lives out from the shadow of their crime. That is, until the press discovered one of them became a famous author under her new name. We release episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find Insight in your favourite podcast app or all across social media just by searching for insight podcast the minds of madness can be found on apple podcasts spotify google play stitcher and all other major podcast apps you can find us on facebook by searching the minds of madness and on twitter using the handle at madness pod and finally the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause